Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Here is Dr. Michael Rogers, Pastor Emeritus. Today, if you want to follow the text, I ask you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 11. Just giving you a bit of context, I'm only going to read a few verses at the end of the chapter. But the subject here, or what's going on, to put it in, in the context of the life and ministry of Jesus, is people are still trying to figure out, who is this Jesus? And if that wasn't a question in many minds of a popular nature, you need to see a very significant person who was asking, who is this guy? And that is John the Baptist. Of all people, John, who a little bit before this in the Gospels, came before and said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now John was in prison, something he surely didn't figure was going to happen to him. And uh, he's asking questions. If you look at verse 3 of Matthew 11, he's asking in prison, saying to his, his disciples, go and find out from this man, Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That was an extraordinary thing for John to ask as the prophet who came before Jesus and already declared he's the Lamb of God. Now he's saying, are you really the one? I can't quite believe it based on all circumstances I see happening. And then this chapter goes on to unfold some things that Jesus has to say about that without directly giving the answer. He's wanting them to come to the answer of that question by their faith. But I read just the last few verses as my text today. Matthew 11. I'll read verses 27 through 30 at the end. He's, Jesus is speaking. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. I ask you to picture in your mind a young boy, age eight, back in the 1950s. One day, it actually was early June, just this time of year, this boy was riding homeward with his grandfather. They'd been out on an errand together. And the grandfather asked the boy if he would mind if he stopped and uh, ran an errand by going into a store uh, and uh, asked the boy to wait in the car. It'll only be a few minutes, he said. Well, a few minutes became a half hour. And being bored and inquisitive, the boy was getting restless, and he opened the glove compartment, the front seat of the car, to see if there might be something to read, maybe a map or a booklet about the car or something that he could occupy himself with and bide the time that seemed to be spinning out. 
Well, all he found in that glove compartment was a Christian tract. The Mennonite Tract Society, it said on it, as a matter of fact. And there was a Bible verse printed on the front cover of the tract that made this grand appeal of Jesus Christ that I read for you a moment ago in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A very strange thing occurred there. The boy could not have explained it to you if you had asked him to do that. But those words seemed to leap off the page. They seemed almost like some form of otherworldly communication from outer space or something, if he would have told you what he thought. The invitation of Jesus, come unto me, seemed to shine on that page as if it was in neon lights in a Broadway theater marquee. Come unto me. They were magnetic words calling to this young boy. And as he thought about them and wondered what they would mean for him, he didn't know it, but he was experiencing something life-changing. For a boy in 1957, 64 years ago, God was calling on the pages of a Mennonite tract. And a few weeks later, that boy felt compelled to pray and surrender himself, heart and mind and soul, to Jesus Christ, who had called to him, Come unto me. If you haven't already guessed, I know this story because I'm the boy. And that's how God, first, by his Holy Spirit, took hold of my mind and my heart and made me his captive long ago. Matthew 11 is actually the only place in the four Gospels where these words are found. They, they seem like very familiar words, and we know that four Gospels often have some of the things are, that Jesus said are in all four Gospels, or in two or in three, not just one. But this is only in this Gospel of Matthew. This come unto me invitation from the heart of Christ, who describes himself here as the gentle and lowly one. I believe the most important question facing any human being is this. Have you obeyed this summons? Have you bowed yourself before Jesus Christ as Lord of your life and of eternity? And to pursue this a little further, I'm going to address three subordinate questions that I think this text is implying to us. First question is this. Do you recognize in yourself a need that only Christ can satisfy? He said, come unto me, all you who are weary and loaded down, heavy laden. He was appealing to people who needed relief. I wonder if you realize what kind of relief he was talking about. It wasn't the hard work of a job that wears you out with physical or mental labor or, or difficulties dealing with other people on your job. Maybe you will think, well, he was appealing to people who have a 40-hour job, but uh, they end up working 50 hours and then have all their work at home and family and community and all that to do besides. 
And instead of a 40-hour work week, it seems to many of us like we work 60 easily. The people I talk to say technology's come along and it's supposed to cut down our work hours. Can't prove that by me. All it ever did in my ministry in this church was increase the hours I had to spend trying to figure out the technology. And I think some of you know what I'm talking about. Unless you have a Michael Plautz in your life who figures it out for you. Well, he's not talking about people who just work hard. Jesus was speaking really about spiritual and moral fatigue and emptiness by people who were worn down and overburdened by their sins and by tangles with the problems of this present world, not just physical hard work. It was spiritual fatigue and moral emptiness that made them heavy laden. If you would examine Old Testament faith and religion, you would find the extraordinary fact that the Old Testament rabbis had taken the law of God and combed it over with a fine-tooth comb, finding, therefore, not just Ten Commandments, they certainly found those, but they went way beyond that and found a total of 614 fine points of God's law, like don't carry a stick of firewood on the Sabbath, or things like that, which observant Jews ought to scrupulously obey. And in this same gospel, Matthew 23, Jesus said, of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, he said, why they tie up heavy burdens and put them on men's shoulders and are not even willing to lift a finger to help anyone spiritually. They taught, in other words, a performance-based Religion, which only piled more weight on top of mankind's existing guilt and frustration. Well, Jesus has an antidote. He says, I have rest. A fantastic four-letter word from God's word that means renewal, resolution, peace that goes deep in your soul and resolves the problem of being heavy laden. King David wrote about the problem in Psalm 55. There he said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove so that I could fly away somewhere and rest. And David said it another time in Psalm 38.3. He wrote, My bones have no rest in them because of my sin. It was a deep-seated anxiety and restlessness that troubled David and all like him in Israel. And he knew then, David knew, and others certainly found out, that the rest that God would bring was forgiveness and the resolving of the fundamental conflict between man and God. Everything is transformed if you have peace with God. You, you will have better peace with most of your fellow men if you have peace with God first. St. Augustine knew that when he prayed, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. So, do you realize that you have a need that only Christ can satisfy? First question. Second question of our text is this. Do you realize in yourself a need that only Christ can satisfy? That was the first, I'm sorry. Second, do you realize the uniqueness of Christ to meet your need? He's absolutely unique. He's the need meter. He said, come unto me. 
Don't come to the law while it is good and it is from God. It in itself is not the total solution to your problem. I'm the solution, he said. He put himself at the center of things here and said, I will give you the true rest from your sins that no one and nothing else can give you. And as I mentioned earlier, here's John the Baptist now in prison. And although he was the greatest anointed prophet of God sent to be the the forebearer of Jesus, to be the trumpet call, uh, the clarion call that here is a savior among us, John now being in prison, which he didn't count on happening, is confused. Is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the one who's going to give us rest? Why am I in prison, he might have said. And yet here was Jesus stating, in me alone, verse 27, he says it very clearly. I'm I'm refashioning his words, but he's saying, in me alone, God, the Lord of heaven and earth, is revealing his human face and come to you. Now that's either true or it's the raving of a madman. Now many of you, of course, have heard the gospel many years of your life and you will assume that when we talk about coming to Christ, we're talking about you coming in a decisive moment of your life, bowing before Jesus Christ, asking him to save you. Oh Lord, I'm in a terrible predicament. I'm loaded down with sin. I can't obey the law well enough to escape this predicament. Save me, Lord. Do what I cannot do for myself. And we know that when we come to God through Christ that way, the scripture says we obtain justification by the grace of God through our faith in Christ. What I found out at eight years old, we are saved eternally when we come to Christ and say, my Lord, My atonement for sin, I look to you and no one else to save me and bring me to God. So coming to Christ indeed does mean believing Jesus paid your debt on the bloody cross and that you are eternally made right by coming to him and accepting what he did on your behalf. Romans 3 says it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified, that wonderful word, by his grace as a gift received through faith. Coming to Christ means coming for salvation. No question about it. And yet I will argue that Matthew eleven twenty nine here is not only about that epic event in each life, which might happen quietly for some or with great drama for others, when we decisively receive Christ as Lord and Savior. Because when Jesus said, come unto me, All you who labor and are heavy laden, he said, take my yoke on you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and in me alone you'll find rest for your souls. He was talking about coming again and again and again and again in your life. Now, quickly, let me say, I'm not saying you need to be saved again and again and again. We are saved once eternally, and many times I think there are people who don't even know. They're not assured about it, at least, to know that God has saved them. And they keep coming and say, give me salvation, give me salvation, when really what they need is assurance that God has given what he would promise he would. But we're talking here about disciples who must come often, every day, every week, even every hour, and say, Lord, 
I need you in this hour. I need you to stand with me. I need you to assure me. I need you to speak for me in this difficult situation I'm facing. And unfortunately, there are some Christians who surely are saved because they have come to Christ with true words of faith. Nevertheless, they trust their feelings more than the gospel. And they say, why, I'm so miserable, I'm so lowly, I'm so sinful. I don't think Jesus could have any time for me. He certainly couldn't come down to the level where I'm living and and repeating my sins over and over again. I don't think he could save me. I don't think if he did save me last week, he can't save me this week. What blasphemy. That's exactly what it is. What blasphemy. You are not giving due regard to the one who says here, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and that's how you'll find me when you come and seek me. You see, Jesus didn't say, I am the son of the king of heaven. I am the eternal one who was not created like you are exactly, even though I have a human nature. I am exalted above the heavens. I bear glory that the angels bow before. You think to yourself, he's going to say that when you come. He's going to say that when you say, Jesus, this is actually the 832nd time that I've confessed to you my sexual temptation or my lying and cover-up in this area of my life, or, or whatever it may be. In this area, my life is such a mess that I can't think. Anyone as exalted as you would bow down to at my level and receive me and give me true rest. I can't believe you would do it. Well, Jesus himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine gives us what you might call an MRI or a CAT scan. I think most of you know what those things are these days. Medical diagnostic tools that literally look inside our bodies and tell the doctors, well, what's going on there? What's the situation in this person's liver or pancreas or whatever? What Jesus is giving us here is an MRI of his own heart. Do you want to know who it is you need to come to when you're loaded down with your sin and your guilt? and you think nothing can be done about it and nobody would would care to approach you and, and help you, that there's no spiritual doctor awaiting you, you're wrong. Come to me, he said. I am gentle and lowly, perfectly approachable. And you can come, and I'll meet you at the point of your need with warm acceptance. I am a hospitable Savior. I'm a welcoming Savior. I'm a Savior who forgets willingly what you can't forget and sets aside that which has been consecrated to the blood of my cross. I'm one who heartily and unconditionally welcomes all who comes to him. You remember the hymn writer who wrote years ago, what a friend we have in Jesus. That seems like sort of a trivial little song. Jesus is a friend. Jesus is a capital F-R-I-E-N-D, the friend like no other. The friend that the Scripture says sticks closer than any brother. A true friend, a forgiving friend, a friend that will not abandon you no matter what your need is, no matter how many times you've grieved him, 
no matter how many times you've gone back and done the same thing you just asked him to forgive you for. He is gentle and lowly. And he deals with you as a friend. The best kind there possibly could be. I think we could compare here in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, the attitude of Jesus towards all believers who come to him and come to him and come to him again and again with their needs and their confessions of sin. He has the same attitude as we find in the great parable he taught us in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that amazing father in that parable? The father's the great character of that parable. You know, we think the prodigal son is the the character or the older brother, and they all deserve notice and, you know, looking at. But who's the real amazing person in that parable? The father. The father who had had half of all his estate that he ever earned and built up, all the animals, all the full barns, all the money, wherever they kept it in those days, not in a bank, I don't think, but whatever. Everything he had ever accrued, a son had come to him and said, Dad, I know that half of this is mine. I want it now, and I'm out of here. And the amazing thing is the father gave it to him. That always amazed me. Why did he do that? Why didn't he say, no, I'm not going to do that. How foolish. You have to wait till I die for that to happen. But he gave it to him. And then you know the story. The son went off, wasted all that he had in taverns and brothels and until he had nothing left. And he figured out, well, I'm a smart guy. You know, <clears throat> I, can, I, I think I know what I need to do here. My dad gave me this half of the estate in the beginning. He's surely a soft-hearted guy. I'll go back and say, Dad, I realize what a mess I made. I realize you shouldn't have given me all that, but you did. And I wasted it, and I'm guilty. But Dad, certainly you have an old horse blanket somewhere in a corner of the barn where I could sleep and you could give me the the job of cleaning out all the animal stalls and never speak to me. Just give me the lowest position on your farm and that's all I deserve. That's all I ask. Is that what the father gave? You see, the son expected a finger wag, right? You dirty guy! You wasted half of my estate and now you want to come back? No way! He didn't say that, did he? As a matter of fact, he didn't even allow the son to say anything, and the father didn't say much either, because his, his gesture said it all. What was his gesture? Not this. This. My son, kill the fatted calf. My son is here. He's come back. That's the gentle and lowly spirit that Jesus has towards all of us if we come and return to him. So the third question I draw this morning from this text is one that assumes you do recognize a need in yourself that only Christ can satisfy, and you have begun to see by faith the utter uniqueness of Jesus Christ to meet that need. So if you've answered those first two questions, here's the third. Are you ready to wear the easy yoke of Jesus? Now, you say, wait a minute. Yoke. I live in Lancaster County. I'm not a farmer, but I know a little bit about farming. And I know that in the old days they had oxen and they'd take that wooden thing 
and you see them hanging on a barn wall or a museum wall or something today, a wooden yoke that goes around the neck of two oxen or two horses and pulls a plow. And what is it doing? It's, it's harnessing animals that have to labor and labor hard on our behalf to work a field. So you think, well, okay, Jesus is telling me he's got a yoke. Now that's for two people to be in, so he must be one of those people, and maybe I'm the other. So Jesus is saying, get my yoke on you, and between us, we'll each pull 50% of your spiritual need. I'll pull 50%, you pull 50%, and we'll move the plow across the field. No. Absolutely wrong. Jesus says nothing like that. Because he did all the heavy lifting. All of it, folks. At the cross, he did all the heavy lifting to move your sin out of the balanced pan of God's scale of justice. And the scale was balanced without you doing a thing except believing that he bore your sins in his body on the tree. And now he says, be yoked to me in intimate relationship so that you would walk beside me, so that the steps I take would of necessity be your steps. I'm pulling, you're walking, but do this by faith, and you'll have an unconditional companion the rest of your days. One writer said something I love the way he stated it. It's almost poetic. He said, the yoke of Christ is no more burden to any Christian than feathers are to a bird. That's right. He invites you to step into his yoke, the yoke that he pulls, that he supplies the power, and walk beside him. I've read once about a Wycliffe Bible translator working in South America years ago. And as Wycliffe translators do, this man was trying to get a written Bible, New Testament, in the language of the people he was serving there, in a jungle people. And he was stuck on a particular word, very important to a translation, the word faith. He couldn't figure out in this native language what, what you would say with one word for faith. Well, this particular native tribe, we're told, was one that lived along jungle rivers, and they had to build bridges to get across these uh, rapid rivers. And their bridges were built of bamboo and, and rope and lashings together, and they just looked rickety, like, kind of like spider's webs. And boy, you'd think twice and three times before you'd commit yourself to go across. Well, one day the, the missionary was with a group of the tribal people, and they came to one of these bridges, and the men scampered across, but the missionary hesitated. And the men called from the other side a word in their language. I can't repeat what the word was because I don't know how to pronounce it but they were saying with that one word launch yourself lean your weight forward launch yourself onto the bridge they were saying it will carry your weight and the translator had his word didn't he the word for faith launch yourself on Jesus Christ let your weight lean on him for he says he would carry us through this life step by step, just as he carried his cross, bearing that sin burden for us that we could not ever lift alone. So today, 
My time is short because of our communion celebration. But I bid you this. Come to Christ. Come and find God's rest for your soul. There's some boys and girls among us. I'm looking around. Maybe here or there I see one that could be near eight years old. Did you hear my story? I was eight. And God reached out. His own word on a piece of paper in my grandfather's car. And his word electrified me. Come to me. Come now. Come without waiting, with trying to get your arguments figured out. Come even though not all your questions are answered. Come not believing you must first fix up your guilty act and all of your naughty things that you think God is putting black marks in his book for you. Come to Christ. Eight-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 85-year-olds. It's never too late to come to Christ. It's never too early either. Come to him today. Come as you are. Come and tell him about yourself and how ashamed you are of the many times you've let him down. Come and believe that he not only has died for you at Calvary, but he sets the pace. And you can walk beside him in a whole new life yoked to Jesus Christ. He is truly the gentle and lowly one. And he gave us another promise to put alongside this word, come to me, when in John 6, 37, he said, he who comes to me, I will never cast him out. Never, 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 never cast him out. Thanks be to God. Father, as we, your body in Christ, gather around this table today, Thank you that we come with the preeminent fact of those who partake of these things because they're saying, I have come. I have come to Jesus. I have bowed to him. I have called him Lord, and I mean it. And it's not how much I mean it that makes the difference. It's him, who he is, and what he's done, and what he continues to do. So, Father, call your people as they come to you. Call children who might be here this morning, that they might come to you, leading the way into a mature, growing discipleship with Jesus in their later years. Come to those who are elderly, Lord, and remind them that their commitment made long ago is perfectly valid because of you. Help us as we come to Jesus. For his sake and his glory alone. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.